watchers in the fourth dimension. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And I don't know why I'm crying. A funny little Welshman that I hardly knew. (laughs) (laughs) This episode, it's the one with the giant maggots as we're discussing the season 10 finale, The Green Death. But before we talk about that, Don's going to do the mail. Over to you, my friend. Starting with some general feedback, Mike Zeplinski, whose name I have probably already butchered, is here to answer a question we were all wondering about, which is how he keeps receiving thin mints from convention guests. <laughs> the saga continues. The saga continues and maybe ends as well. He says, I am humbled by you reading my previous comment on the air. There's no need to be humbled by us. Trust me. As to why I keep getting Girl Scout cookies from Who Actors, I do a lot of security and crowd control work at various conventions, so I also get to speak with guests as part of my job. Naturally, they get gifts from fans all the time, and at the particular convention, there was one regular attendee who always gave them Girl Scout cookies. This actually confused and bemused most of the UK-based guests, since there was no equivalent in the UK, and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I can relate. I was there at Anthony's first Dragon Con. Ton of stuff I had to explain to him. It was awesome. Gumby. One of my favorite members. Gumby. Damn it. <laughs> Gumby. Yes. He was in the right place at the right time. In the case of Miss Wills, she said that she didn't eat wheat products. So he got some Girl Scout cookies. Thanks, Mike. We were all wondering. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to Carnival of Monsters. Tim Smith says, I thought it was a bit crap upon its first airing. I can see that. It's not top-notch, Pertwee. Quite good, but somewhat dull. Certainly in places, I agree. Astrozon Dagelbert Zebulon says, It has problems. It has, I think, one of the highest camp counts of all of Pertwee. I'm sure (laughs) Anthony has that in the spreadsheet, but I love it so. 8.5 out of 10 miniscopes. Kieran James Evans says, Liking it a fair bit more than most of the gang, I give this one around a 7 to 8 out of 10. I'll be interested to hear what Julie makes of Redacted as a companion in a few episodes' time. I'm not going to be responsible for dropping spoilers here, but thank you for your comment, Garrett. Beardo Beatnik directly calls me out saying, Don, how dare you besmirch President Vorg's glorious outfit, the finest in bespoke space carny wear. I love it. I shall now be known as Don the Besmircher. Also, thanks to Julie for recognizing the only hero of the story, Sherna. Yay! That's true. Continuing with Carnival of Monsters, the Whovian gal says, I'm with Antony on this one. I really like this story. The aesthetic and plot remind me of both Dr. Seuss and Douglas Adams, which gives me a lot of childhood nostalgia. Excellent. Dave Columbus says, Of all of Pertwee's stories, this is one of my favorites. I say this even though it seems to go against the group's consensus. Dave, it's pretty rare we actually have consensus as a group, so don't worry about that. (laughs) Regarding the reveal, Holmes' original story did have the two separate plot lines separated until the end, but it was overruled, possibly by Dix. To put the reveal as the episode one cliffhanger, I think that would have given the story a better punch. I do agree that the bickering bureaucrats went on a little too long, saying the same things over and over. However, I like this much more than the three doctors which preceded it. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. Moving on to the three doctors, Nicholas John Payne says, I always recall the making of the show Look In on Pertwee. He was in the makeup chair and they showed the fight sequence as he was being interviewed. 
think that would have been fun to watch. Tony Lazarus says, It is possible to feel great affection for a story while still knowing deep down that it isn't very good. And that's how I feel about <laughs> the three doctors. Some joyous bands between Pert and Trout, though. There's a lot of things I love that technically aren't very good at all, so I can relate to that. <laughs> Nathan Laws says, I actually like the appearance of the antimatter creature, since as a being from a world with laws completely alien to our own, you'd think it should look like garbage short perception. I actually have a very big soft spot for the antimatter creature because to me, it's using bad CSO to its best possible effect. This doesn't explain the jail guards, though. Apparently, Omega has a horrible imagination. <laughs> I always had a problem with the brig thinking they were on a beach since there isn't any water anywhere. Even <laughs> if he's cracking up, that seemed a bit too much. I have seen beaches that were a lot more beach than you could actually see from the water, so maybe he didn't see it. I, I don't know. That's my little headcanon revision. J.M. Casey says, I have a pretty exact personal fix on just when the Gallifrey and the Time Lord revelations... Sounds like a band. Cross over into something <laughs> that, in my opinion, made the whole thing uninteresting... It's coming up for a while later in the 70s. This is a fun story, and it's nice that everyone enjoyed it. Truly great to see Troughton again, and I like this Omega and his thunderous performance. Stephen Thorne always seemed like the guy to go to if you wanted these sorts of villains. Omega has this added tragic grandeur to him. The Maskin is probably one of the most memorable of its era. I'm a big fan of Omega and his over-the-top scene-chewing antics myself, so thank you. And that is the mail. Thank you, sir. As a reminder to our listeners, we love getting your feedback, thoughts, comments, and questions. And as you've heard, we do try and read them out on the show. Please do get in touch. You can contact us through Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at atwatchers4d, or you can email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. Looking behind the scenes on The Green Death, the serial has its origins in both producer Barry Letts and script editor Terence Dix becoming interested in environmental issues. Letts was particularly interested in an article by Edward Goldsmith entitled A Blueprint for Survival, which was published in The Ecologist. The duo felt the show provided an opportunity to promote a positive message about the dangers of pollution and the need to better protect the environment. While planning the show's 10th season, Letts came up with a concept that was tentatively entitled The Amoeboids, in which Earth's pollution would have attracted some giant omnivorous insectoid aliens. Let's wanted to use the Royal Air Force again to help realize the flying aliens on screen. Could have been interesting. However, by the time they began planning the season in earnest, Let's thought maybe it was best to scale back his ambitions a little. The serial now revolved around mutated insects emanating from a disused coal mine. He hoped that the serial would be able to demonstrate the need for balancing economic progress with environmental concerns without turning it into an anti-capitalist tract. Letts and Dix also wanted to avoid the serial being overly political in order to avoid being accused of fermenting opposition to the incumbent conservative government led by Ted Heath. In scripting, Letts once again turned to his writing partner Robert Sloman. He started on the storyline in October 1972 and received his formal commission at the end of November. In writing, Sloman drew on the activism of Greenpeace, which had recently been founded in 1969, along with the activities of the Biotechnic Research and Development Community in Wales, which was basically a real-life whole wheel. The character of Stevens was based on Sloman's old boss from the newspaper industry, who was called Jocelyn Stevens. In parallel with Sloman's work on the scripts, Let's held discussions with Katie Manning about her future on the show, as she had indicated that she was considering leaving. Let's was also acutely aware that John Pertwee was starting to consider leaving at the end of the following season, and Let's wanted to avoid losing both of his stars simultaneously. Let's also agreed with Katie Manning that her staying on for any longer may be detrimental to her career. 
By January 1973, Letts and Manning agreed that the Green Death would be Joe Grant's swan song. Sloman was thus asked to amend the scripts to write her out, and he incorporated a romance with Professor Clifford Jones, and the character was deliberately written as a younger version of the Doctor, as that was the only type of person for whom the production team could see her leaving the Doctor and unit. Assigned as director for the story, we have Michael Bryant, who quickly sought to cast the remaining parts. For the role of Professor Jones, one of the suggestions was Katie Manning's then real-life boyfriend, Stuart Bevan. Bryant was initially hesitant to cast Bevan, partly out of fear of further upsetting John Pertwee, who was already devastated about Manning's pending departure. As it happened, Bevan turned out to be the only suitable actor who auditioned, and he got the part anyway. On the subject of actors, it was during the serial's third recording block that actor Tony Adams, who played Elgin, fell ill with peritonitis, and the script had to be hastily rewritten to introduce a new character, Mr. James, who took the remainder of Elgin's role. Mr. James was played by Roy Skelton, who is frequently a background actor in the Pertwee era. Joining Bryant on the creative team, we have John Burroughs making his only contribution to the show as designer. A man of many talents, he also worked as both a director and producer, and is most notable for producing over 50 episodes of the music show The Old Grey Whistle Test. Providing costumes, we have the return of Barbara Kidd, who previously worked on Frontier in Space earlier in the season. Last, but not least, we of course have the return of Dudders for incidental music. The final episode was recorded on April 30th, 1973, bringing Katie Manning's time on the show to an end. This was the beginning of the end for the so-called Unit family who had been together since the start of season 8. It was by all accounts a highly emotional day on set. However, there was little time for reflection for Pertwee and Nicholas Courtney, who would both go straight into filming the next serial, The Time Warrior, which would be held over to open season 11. The serial was broadcast between May 19th and June 23rd, 1973, with Manning's decision to leave announced to the public the day before the final episode was broadcast. With that, we move into our short summary, which is with me this time around. Here we go. This serial is basically a retread of the war machines. However, the evil computer actually has a personality and is hell-bent on profit rather than global domination, leading a company called Global Chemicals. Its total disregard for health and safety regulations leads to a holocaust of the yokels, thanks to a bunch of giant maggots that were mutated by the pollution. Meanwhile, a bunch of hippie scientists are protesting Global Chemicals while also growing mushrooms, which unexpectedly turn out to poison the maggots. That's quite an effect. Joe falls in love with the lead hippie scientist who happens to be a younger version of the Doctor, causing her to leave the Doctor and make plans to get married before going on a jaunt up the Amazon, and breaks all our hearts in the process. All right, let's talk about it. Episode one. We're in Wales. Finally. We did it. We made it to Wales. <laughs> At last. Welsh teeth. We did it. <laughs> Damn it. That's what I wanted to say, Don. Too bad. You stole my Holocaust of the Yokels joke. So. <laughs> It was fair. too good not to use. Thank you. I like the beginning. It's pretty atmospheric. I love all the yokels. They all make <laughs> me very happy. I wanted more time in the mess hall, we'll call it. We didn't get as much mess hall time as I really wanted there to be. I did think it was pretty atmospheric. Not quite to the demons level, but it was better than I've seen in some other episodes. It's funny, a lot of people will complain about the various Welsh yokels being overly stereotypical Welshmen, but my father is Welsh. I spent a lot of my childhood in Wales on school vacations and weekends and so on, and I'm wondering if the people who make that criticism have ever actually been to Wales, because this is what the <laughs> Welsh are like. 
So boyo is a common term? It's probably not used that much, but it, it is used occasionally. And I feel like it was probably used a little bit more frequently further in the past. Yeah, probably. Like, probably. Yeah. I also like that this kind of turned into a coal versus oil first off and then versus green energy type of deal. To your point, when he was talking about like trying not to make it too politicized, I think they did a pretty good balance of that. So it was much more on the environmental impacts, but not touching too much on political agenda. Right. It was quite refreshing for the show to take on something. And like you said, they don't go too far. They don't become too preachy. They just lay it out there for the audience. And you can make your own determinations on what is correct and what isn't correct. But I would like to discuss that Joe, the very beginning, looks like she is cosplaying as the fifth doctor. <laughs> yes. She does. Yes, she does. Weirdly. And it looks great on her. <laughs> I wonder if he just remembered that when he eventually gets there and takes some inspiration from Joe. So maybe it's the fifth Doctor cosplaying as Joe. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that headcanon. Yeah, we get a really, I think, lovely first episode in which we split them up right off the bat. It's a good foreshadowing to what happens at the end, but also provides you something that I always enjoy, which is the classic silent scenes. Everything you need to know is just shown not said and i'm talking about the doctor's visit to the planet oh oh that was good yeah it was great that was like classic silent comedy right there i know it's funny because every time it cuts to him it's just getting steadily worse <laughs> <laughs> i love that aspect of it i like that it's like the the cutback so it's something weird is going on let's cut back to the doctor Okay, we're finding out more about this and we're, we're getting further into it. And let's cut back to the doc. So it's funny because of all the terrible things happening to him, but it also like is reflecting how time passes for him with the rest of the crew. And the giant bird feet or creature <laughs> feet flying in. I love that bit. It's you know something that has been done several times in a lot of those dinosaur movies in the 50s and 60s. That effect. I love that effect. And what I really love about it is it's filmed on location. Metabilis 3 is in South Wales. <laughs> I like it. Oh, and don't forget, there is a Gurn right at the very beginning when he gets there. Remember when that thing grabs him? Yeah. Yes. There is a good That's Gurn. That's a Gurn. Mark it down. Add that to the count. Julie, you were saying how they intersperse the editing with the scenes cutting back and forth. Yeah, that is incredibly enjoyable and just emphasizes the comedy. And it helps like pacing. So we're not just getting a lot of yeah. exposition and then right. seeing what happened with the doctor. It's we get some exposition, we get some comedy, we get some more exposition, we get some comedy. So I really enjoyed that aspect of it as well. I was very glad to see that the doctor's trip wasn't just filler. It actually comes back later on to be relevant to the plot. And I was afraid it wasn't. And of course, it's kind of been brewing since Carnival of Monsters because in Carnival of Monsters, he was trying to get them to Metabilis 3 before they landed on the SS Bernice. Yeah, I don't know if I would call that brewing so much as they had a good planet name and just wanted to use it again. <laughs> Fair. What was it that they were throwing at the doctor as he was leaving? A spear. But I also like that they plant the seeds of Joe leaving completely in this first one because the doctor talks about like the fledgling flies the coop. Oh yep, yeah, yep. they laid that on really thick. Like you could yeah. tell. I mean, I didn't realize that she was gonna get Susan quite like she did, but still. I 
am more okay with this one than the Susan one. I feel like there was more chemistry and more reason than the Susan one. That's a good segue. In this episode, we have the typical meet cute. How did we think that worked out? They just reuse the same scene from when she met the doctor. I was going to say that. She's yeah. clumsy and he's rude. It's Terror of the Autons <laughs> all over again, but yeah. more Welsh. But guess what? They have matching hair. <laughs> <laughs> but we could never. And that's all it takes. Just matching hair. <laughs> they both got done from touring with Badfinger. <laughs> Who are also from Wales. Oh, there you go. I thought I was just being like topical because of the time period and just the hairs match, but... Geographically topical too. Oh boy. I want to talk about a few things. The Brigadier, what first off I don't understand is why he's not driving a military vehicle out there. He's like, I'm going to take a convertible. It was a convertible Mercedes. Why? If he was the only one going down, he wanted to do it in style in his own fancy car, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, having the doctor also be on Metabolic Street also gives Joe some more time with the brigadier and maybe some of the others as well. So she's not just leaving the doctor. She's also leaving unit. So we're giving her some more time with the brigadier, which was nice. Yeah. Let's talk about Stevens and Global Chemicals, because we start out and he does the whole, I have in my hand a piece of paper, you know, wealth in our time. It's very <laughs> Neville Chamberlain with his promises of peace with Hitler. He's pretty suave. I love Stevens. He is a great actor. It's played very well, and he's very charismatic, and he's not a terrible boss. I mean, aside from brainwashing you. <laughs> uh, aside from the, but you know. he's not the stereotypical horrible boss who just yells at people. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think the only really terrible thing is eventually brainwashing Fell and having him jump off a balcony. Yeah, well, he's also been brainwashed by a boss, so. True. Even he, and that's moving ahead a bit, was like, was that really necessary? Did we have to do that? He was kind of having the, are we the baddies moment, which was <laughs> kind of nice. I really love the juxtaposition between Stevens and Professor Jones as well, particularly that scene where Stevens is talking to the brigadier and Jones is talking to Joe. And you got Stevens saying, you know, it's clean, no byproduct, no waste. And you've got Professor Jones saying it can't be clean. They've got to be putting the pollution down the mine. It's just cut and directed really well. Absolutely. We also get a wardrobe change. And Joe finally wears something practical for at least a portion of a cereal. <laughs> it's only taken her three seasons. <laughs> it's like, yes, we're going to put you in minor garb. And I think she's adorable in it. Mm -hmm. yes. And I... Love that whole sequence of starting to go down and go into the mines. And the CSO is a little bit wonky. CSO was awful. Yes. <laughs> but it got the point across and I'm not going to hate on it as I've done with some other serials because like that would actually be difficult to shoot in that time period. So I'm, I don't hate it. I like how the giant maggots like, yeah, yeah, we totally got this. But wait, you want us people moving down a lift? That's impossible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Once we get to the maggots, I have a lot of good things to say. So, uh, <laughs> There's a sentence you don't hear every day. <laughs> I love the various Welshmen that Joe interacts with. You know, you've got Di already down the mine and infected. You've got Dave, played by Talfrin Thomas, the Mr. Welsh Teeth himself. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got the delightful Bert, who uh, just between them, they're just, they're wonderful. I they love are. them. But 
we wrap up the episode with Joe heading down the mine and the Doctor and Lethbridge Stewart getting there and telling Dave to stop winding and the Doctor has to think on his feet as the lift is out of control and we get a zoom in on the Doctor's face and that's our cliffhanger. Episode two. Doctor's quick thinking saves the situation. <laughs> yes, again, it's that stereotypical, oh my gosh, there's a cliffhanger. And then 30 seconds into the next episode, and we've resolved the cliffhanger. Yay! <laughs> there were two ways to resolve it. Like, it was either going to happen very, very quickly by the Doctor saving them, or they were going <laughs> to die when the thing crashed down to the bottom. I get the criticism, Julie. I just don't think there was another way with this particular cliffhanger. I know, but I'm just, it's become a kind of a stereotype with this era. Yeah. You can't really take the cliffhangers too seriously. It's just basically, okay, here's where we have to stop. <laughs> and then That's the fair. scene will go on in a week. Yep. I know we kind of probably mentioned it before, but you have the boyo, you got the bloodwind. Bloodwind, uh, yeah. Bloodwind. I love all the Welshness of this whole serial. Some people is like, oh, it's a stereotype. I think it adds flavor to the story. It's the Welsh agenda. <laughs> <laughs> Welsh agenda. The only thing missing is they should have retitled it and it should have been the green death of a 30-letter word that has yeah. nothing but consonants <laughs> throughout it. So is the wealth agenda like like the gay agenda, but with a lot more <laughs> unnecessary letters? Yes, that's okay. exactly what it is. Perfect. Good to know. <laughs> I actually had a note and I was like, I'm not going to attempt to pronounce the name of this town. Clan <laughs> Fairfax. That's nice. Gesundheit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but seriously, they get out of the busted lift and they're taking a look at something and they're like, oh, hey, look, Di's there. I'm like, how in the world did you miss him? He was literally right there. Yeah, he was very conveniently close. Yeah. Very convenient. Also, we get Professor Jones being very, very, very worried about Joe. I'm like, that was quick. <laughs> yeah. I do love how he immediately has the doctor's respect. I mean, the doctor's yeah. read his work and says, your paper was quite brilliant for someone your age. And he goes, oh, yes, well, I am young. He goes, no, no, I mean the age you live in. They're immediately in cahoots. I don't know how cahoots they are, considering how much the doctor tries to cock block him with Joe <laughs> later on. <laughs> yeah. At least at this point, they're in cahoots. What I really love about this episode is the little cat and mouse between Global Chemicals and our heroes around the cutting equipment. I mean, it's oh, such a small yeah. plot point and it's basically padding, but it's really well done padding. I agree, especially the way that it gets resolved, because the way that it gets resolved is the Brigadier is like, oh, yeah, we happen to stop at a car shop and they happen to have one. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's the best way to end that. It was funny. I, I had made a comment. I was like, that was quick. And then I was like, oh, it's kind of convenient, but I love it. I really love the moment when the doctor jumps the fence and trips the alarm and you've got him running around an industrial complex. We haven't had Quatermass <laughs> in a while. This story is basically the war machines, the invasion, and our classic Quater masturbation all at the same time. Plus, we get a fight scene between the guards and Pertwee's stunt double. Yes. It's awesome. <laughs> Good for Terry Walsh getting a paycheck this time around. <laughs> it's been a while since we've had Venusian Aikido as well. I like how they also were like, okay, what kind of equipment can we use that we haven't used before? Oh, hey, one of these vehicles where usually fix power lines? Yes, this is what we need to get over a fence. Oh, yeah, we forgot about the fence. <laughs> oh, the cherry picker thing. Also, the demonstration that <laughs> Professor Jones puts on as the distraction has got to be one oh. of the smallest demos ever. <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, that was so good. Down the mine, you've got Bert and Joe, and Bert 
sees some green goo and goes, I don't know what this is. Let me touch it. Even though two of my friends have been infected with something weird down here. Dude, what are you doing? And not only that, after he touches it, they then see the light and it's like, oh, let's go towards the light and this awful smell. Maybe don't go towards the light and the awful smell. It's pretty clear this was an inspiration for Damon Lindelof with the Prometheus script. (laughs) (laughs) This is terrifying. Let me touch it. And when the rest get down there, Dave, who I absolutely love, he is possibly my favourite guest character of the season so far, also almost does it too before the Doctor stops him. What is it with all of these Welshmen who want to touch this green goo? Yep, absolutely. Have no idea. Questions for the ages. Riley, earlier you had been talking about how he had a really disgusting cereal. Ah, yes. Does this go above that disgusting cereal? No, actually, it doesn't, because the maggots seem very well contained, and it's just happening there, and that's the only disgusting thing, is just the maggots. I knew that was going to come up. It just doesn't feel the same, because it isn't, like, all-encompassing grossness all over. Yeah, there was some little, like, spraying of green crap, and (laughs) later on, and so on, but this one is not as bad, but they definitely are trying to keep things a little bit gross on the show right now. Keeps the kids watching. Yeah, the maggots were very well done. I thought they were great. There, something about did they use the dragish mouths for them? Because it looked almost identical. The little teeth and how the mouth opened. I know this actually. They used real fox skulls. Oh, what? whoa! Yep. Yeah, they didn't like kill foxes for it, well, but no, they but... used fox skulls. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Was not expecting that. I'll never look at a fox the same way again. <laughs> Our first close-up with the maggot, the Doctor gets to Joe, there's this cavern full of green goo and giant maggots, and then there's a cave-in behind them with maggots coming out of them, and you get that close-up with them hissing. That is fantastic. I love it. This is one of the better cliffhanger-type things with the hissing maggots. Also, the special effect of the hissing maggot is one of the better special effects I've seen in a while on the show. I liked it. Yeah, they did a really good job with those. They did. That's our cliffhanger. The closing credits, the background, the howl around is upside down, but I don't know if anyone other than me noticed that because nerd. On to episode three. The Doctor and Joe underground. I was getting some heavy Silurian vibes here. (laughs) It's like the Silurians, but with maggots. Yeah. (laughs) Which is better than a really crappy dragon or dinosaur or whatever that was. It's this episode where we get to see the brigadier in a suit, not a military uniform, and it is so... It's off-putting. Yes. (laughs) Incredibly so. I was like, why did he change? Like, why? Yeah. Well, he wasn't in his uniform to begin with when he drove down, but he was just wearing a jacket before, so you didn't notice because he was wearing this coat. So now it's come off, he's in his suit. It's off-putting. I don't like it. Like, we had the episode where he was in, like, a dressing gown. That was fine. Yeah, he was in bed in that one as well. Yes. (laughs) But him in a regular coat? No, uh uh-uh, absolutely not. (laughs) Not until he retires, thank you very much. Absolutely. But we also have the Brigadier and Professor Jones agreeing, which I found interesting because the Brigadier is not going to like these hippie types. No, but he also recognizes that something really weird is going on down the mine and that global chemicals are probably responsible. And that's kind of Unit's job. So while he may not necessarily agree from a core values perspective, the end result is the same. This company is doing something really sketch. And the brig does really warm up to them eventually. That's true. 
in other areas. Yes, yes, yes. Is this the episode where we get the what I found to be the ironic death of the employee? Where Fell falls? Yes, where <laughs> the employee yes. named Ralph Fell falls to his death. <laughs> Rafe Fell Fell. Yes. Yes. It, yes. I think it is this episode. It is. But before we got to that point, one of my favorite things is the Brigadier and Stevens having a I have more friends in high places off. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which I have to say, someone dropping the Minister of Ecology does not sound as intimidating as the Briggs reaction made it out to be. <laughs> but then he gets the prime minister who's called jeremy who it's kind of implied that it's jeremy thorpe who was the leader of the liberal party who would long story he eventually has a huge sex scandal basically and gets ousted as leader of the liberal party and they will never win a general election again i love that whole scene and just the way he ends it with yes you have very powerful friends mr stevens we know who's won anthony is this the first time on the show that they've had even just someone playing the prime minister even though it's the back of their head i think we got a voice maybe on the phone like a, a muffled voice on the phone before either in mind of evil or possibly the claws of axos i forget but somewhere around that time but nothing nearly as clear as this we also get to meet I, we kind of met him in episode two but we get to see more of elgin who is actually a really nice guy and i love his style that three-piece suit looks great i liked elgin a lot i love elgin <laughs> <laughs> he was phenomenal. I'm really sad that he got sick because I loved it anytime he was on screen. I somehow liked his hairstyle. It fit him. I don't know how. Did. <laughs> loved it. Complete with the pencil mustache. Yeah. Yes. I don't know how. He just made it work. On the DVD, there was a comedy spoof spin-off to this that Mark Gatiss made called Global Conspiracy that was revisiting Hlan Fairfax. 30 years later, <laughs> Elkin is one of the people who shows up in that being interviewed and being like, yeah, yeah, it's a shame I missed like the rest of it. I felt ill. <laughs> so nice. it's kind of in universe. If I can find it online, I'll put the link in the podcast blurb. Oh, man. I love whenever he's around. But I think we also had like the Brigadier and someone else like just drinking scotch randomly. I guess it was scotch. It could have been right. something else. I yeah. don't know. I assume scotch. It was a brown liquor and Stevens was smoking a cigar as well. I mean, it's boys club, right? Boys club. Even though he had friends in higher places, it still is warranted with cigars and scotch. That's how it works. Well, that's the way you wrap up a friends in higher places off is you have to wrap it up with cigars and scotch. Yeah. The last time I came into conflict with someone at work and it turned out they knew the CEO, we then had scotch and cigars. <laughs> it's just how it goes, right? Absolutely. We had briefly already touched upon what happens to poor Rafe. It's right after this when the brainwashing happened and they decide that he needs to fall. Yeah. <laughs> That's after Elgin convinces him to help him open the door to the pipe so the doctor and Joe can get out before the waste gets flushed down it, which would kill them. This is a children's show, right? It is. Okay, just yes. checking. This was actually one of the very, very early stories I saw. I think it got repeated on BBC Two in maybe 93-ish, and it scared the hell out of me. Hmm. Yeah, I could see that. But, you know, I was like six years old. I really want to get to this next part. We get to the hippies. We go to the nut yes. hutch, where we get first random lady who plays a flute. Okay, yep. great. 
Joe gets another wardrobe change. This might be the cereal that she has the most changes in wardrobe, and she gets to wear a dress. I think the doctor catches up to her, though, because he changes clothes a lot in this. Also true. But we learn more about Professor Jones and his trip to the Amazon, and it's just a fun little scene learning about the people in the nuthatch. Also, speaking of costume changes, you get the brigadier in black tie. He's wearing a tux. Yeah, I did like that. I feel like he either has to be in soldier uniform or like really dressy, but just wearing like (laughs) business clothes just didn't do it for me. Interestingly, he wasn't in his formal military uniform here, his dress uniform. He was in civilian formal wear. I don't think he packed appropriately, and I think it was a borrowed suit. Must be so happy they never made Beach Resort of the Daleks. (laughs) Just see him walking around in a t-shirt and swim trunks. In this scene, I think Joe's hair looks absolutely great. She looks great in episode three. After, you know, coming back up and getting all cleaned up. Yeah. I love our little introduction to the various people in the nut hutch and realizing that these hippies doing weird stuff are all super accomplished academics and scientists. I think that's so cool. It's very countercultury. Yep. Definitely a flashback to the end of the 60s. I dig it. I was like, oh, here we go. Here comes the love story. Cliff Jones and Joe Grant. But then we have the doctor <laughs> walking in. As Don says, he cock-blocks them. <laughs> totally. And it's so wonderful how awkward everyone is during that whole thing. Cliff is like trying to stay with Joe. And then he's like being dragged away by the doctor. And he's just like yelling after her. Oh, I loved it. That was a fun little scene. Yeah. And the doctor telling Joe that he got to Metabilis 3 and she is just clearly not interested. She doesn't care at all. But I got the thing. Whatever. Dude, it's over. Move on. Yeah. (laughs) What's really funny about this is Pertwee said in his words, we were both terribly upset as we were very fond of each other. One day Barry Letts called me and said, this has got to stop. You are supposed to be an elderly doctor in charge of a young woman and you're not playing it like that at all. Stop it at once. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy oh boy. yeah oh all right so she ends the episode reading professor jones's book as the maggot egg that they brought back from the mine starts hatching and it creeps up on her readying itself to attack we get a really cool point of view shot and that's our cliffhanger that was really well done it was Yes. Yeah. I think very highly of Michael Bryant as a director. I made a note here where I was like, this guy is probably going to win Best Director for this season. I also love some of the scripting that they did, like this whole goon that was sent to the nut hutch to steal the egg is the one who inadvertently saves Joe when the maggot. I just thought that was brilliantly done. Yeah, it's Hinks, who is Stephen's saff London heavy. (laughs) Very saff London. I really, really love this Nuthutch crew. I mean, Nancy just gets all gung-ho and goes chasing after the maggot. Very ballsy. Absolutely. Cut to the next day, and unit crew is here, and Benton is back. I knew that would make you happy. Benton is back. Eventually, Yates is tolerable. Yes. I'm looking forward to getting to probably my favorite thing in this entire serial. I don't know if I want to spoil it, but it's actually the Doctor and his various disguises. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, yes. First, we have to properly meet the milkman, who is Jones the Milk. I love the milkman, even though he's not in it for very long. Just this few little scenes that he has. I'm like, you are brilliant. He's such a cheeky guy. Like, he calls the brigadier captain. 
<laughs> and he makes it well known that he knows that they're going to blow up the mine. Oh. <laughs> it's just like, I love him. But that does give the introduction that allows for the Doctor's first disguise. They introduce him and they introduce the cleaning lady. Yeah. <laughs> they introduce both of them and then they go through this whole ruse thing that he does. I was really glad to see the cleaning lady pay off. So I'm like, who is she? Why do we have this other random character coming in? And then it made yes. sense. It did, however, make me regret that we haven't really seen the doctor do anything like this before. Because Pertwee is really good at it. It feels like it's just indulging him more than anything. You're devastated about Katie Manning leaving, so we'll let you dress up and do some funny voices since you love doing that so much. This, to me, is so much better than the action man crap. Yeah. Yes. This is oh, super entertaining. It's entertaining, and it makes sense. He chooses characters that a lot of people in certain positions aren't going to pay that much attention to. Mm -hmm. So pretending to be the milkman's father... Well, okay, I'll buy it, especially if you're speaking nonsense and <laughs> pretending to be. Then when he's the cleaning lady and they ask her a question and he just mumbles incoherently and they're like, okay, yeah, that checks Whatever, out. Okay. His Welsh accent is not good. He sounds a little bit Scottish in places. But it's great because he just makes it incoherent and they're like, yep, we buy it. Yep. So good. So unit blowing up the mine. Unit blows stuff up. That's kind of what they do. That's part of their job description, apparently. The model work is not bad at all. Mm -mm. No, I thought that was really well done. And while the Doctor is at Global Chemicals trying to prevent them from blowing up the mine, firstly, Stevens spits a bunch of insults out at him, including calling him a scientific charlatan, which I thought was great. But we also meet the man from the ministry, which is Yates in disguise, actually doing useful shit for the first <laughs> time in forever. <laughs> I wholeheartedly agree. I have to say, I actually enjoyed Yates. Yeah. In this entire serial. Did good yeah. work. I mean, Benton didn't get mind controlled and didn't try to kill people, but you know, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we are happy that he did not have theater commitments this time. <laughs> Still managing to throw shade. <laughs> Absolutely. That's what I'm here for. And I think it's here that with the unit crew all together dealing with this, we start getting terminology thrown out in place of just calling them maggots. We had creepy crawlies. And then also my favorite, the brigadier while shooting at one with a handgun, a dratted caterpillar. <laughs> and the doctor says bullets won't work against them. They have thick chitinous plates. My favorite little fact out about that, which I think is hilarious, was that was pronounced wrong. It's actually chitinous. Ah. And the Doctor Who production office got an anonymous letter and all it said was, the reason that I'm writing is how to pronounce chitin. And that's all it said. <laughs> awesome. Oh. Hats off to you, anonymous smartass. <laughs> if you're listening, please let us know. We would love to buy you a drink sometime. So is this where we get the situation where Joe is with Professor Jones, messes up his stuff, she goes out to the slag heap to find... Grab a maggot. Grab a maggot. And Benton just casually is like, okay, yeah, you're trying to find the doctor, whatever. I have to say, Benton, you weren't too smart. You should know Joe by now. Yeah. Right. And the fact that she was looked like she was holding a cat carrier with her. Yes. Like <laughs> Before she goes off, Cliff asks her to make coffee. And she says, like a dutiful tea girl, 
Think back to Terror of the Autons, where the Doctor mistook her for the Tea Lady right at the beginning. There are so many cool little parallels here between Asshole Season 8 Third Doctor and Professor Jones. And Asshole Current Season Professor Jones. <laughs> I feel like the implication is her time with the Doctor softened him, and now it's Professor Jones's turn to get softened. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much there. Again, the only reason why I can accept her even ending up with Professor Jones is because he's so like the Doctor. If he hadn't been, I would have been like, excuse me, but that's besides the point. We'll get there. Yeah. And he's so focused. He doesn't even realize she's gone. He doesn't see her note until he makes a breakthrough based on her screw up. So the doctor breaking into Global Chemicals, Donald's already mentioned the two wonderful disguises, but he uses his sonic and breaks into the very top level and meets Boss, the computer. And that's our cliffhanger. I am the computer. <laughs> I'm the computer. Episode five, let's start this one off by talking about Boss, because I think he's fantastic. Hilarious. Yeah. I love Boss. The fact that you have this AI that's supposed to be trying to do its best for making profits, all this other stuff, but also absolutely adores classical music, which we'll get to in episode six. Just that juxtaposition. Ugh, wonderful. Perfect. I feel like he's the ultimate evolution of Siri or Alexa. He's like a machine that runs the company, but also has a personality. I love it so hard. I would argue that he has more of a personality than many of the villains we've had for the last several seasons. Absolutely. I kind of wish the personality of Boss and his voice was based on Tobias Vaughn from The Invasion. <laughs> Oh. oh, I did get some vibes of that at times. It had that feel to me, and I just wanted him to be able to go back. Ah, but well, no. there are points where he goes, <laughs> Stephen, <laughs> and I was definitely getting shades of Packer. I just loved Boss. All of these things that he says, I am infallible. It's wonderful. I love when the Doctor puts his riddle to it, and you get Boss umming and ahhing his way through it as he kind of stalls for time as he tries to think of a good answer. <laughs> I got this. I got this. Hang on. Hang on. I got it. It was like, you know, this is irrelevant. Hang on. Hang on. Give me a minute. Yeah. <laughs> I also like the Doctor trying to, like, get around my control. And it's like, pi, 3.141566. And I was like, it's 5, 9, ah. I know more like <laughs> I know more numbers. Oh. He was going through the 3.14159 digits of pi. Pi is different on his home world, obviously. He just decided to stop early. He's like, yeah. I'm not going all the way out to mm. nine, sorry. That's yeah, just too far. And do we think this mind probing is a callback? To what? There's been a lot of mind probing. Yeah, I was gonna ask. Which one? Just the specific one uh, from Frontier in Space. The threat of the mind probe and the doctor saying how he just breaks mind probes. Yeah, I could see that. Yep. In parallel with the doctor and boss, we also have Cliff finding Joe and they take cover from the RAF airstrike in this mine tunnel. A blast throws Cliff through the air and the bombing didn't even work on the maggots. So there's that. But it leads to effectively Cliff somehow getting green goo or coming into contact with a maggot. I don't know, but somehow he gets infected. I think during that whole somersaulting through the air and like their maggots were fairly close by, like, I hand waved it a little bit, but it's not surprising to me. I would have liked it to be a little more explicit, but you can hand wave it and head cannon, whatever phrase you want to use. I mean, it's not 
unrealistic. It's in the would-be-nice bucket for me. I think my favorite part of that whole thing is just the helicopter guy just casually just tossing bombs out the window of the helicopter. (laughs) (laughs) Like, boop, boop. Can you imagine the production assistants having to like go around dropping these white logs all over the <laughs> landscape to set up the shot? Uh. Back to the doctor at Global Chemicals. I love that little bit of dialogue between him and Boss where the doctor says, you're trying to tell me that this is for my own good. It is. It hurts you more than it hurts me. <laughs> it does. <laughs> He's fantastic. And then he's taken to his prison cell. And I've got to ask, why are there chains hanging down from the ceiling? Does this double as a sex dungeon? <laughs> Didn't you see Yates chained up in episode six? <laughs> yes, 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 I did. <laughs> Mr. Stevens was having some fun. Yates is more of a sub than the doctor is. That's all that means. <laughs> Yates is definitely not a top. Absolutely not. Can we talk about the CSO in the last episode? Because it seemed like there were so many that were unnecessary. Did they have to do reshoots when they were outside? Where it's the doctor drives up in a Jeep and then the brigadier's there and then like, okay, we're all on location. And then boom, brigadier shot now is CSO. Like (laughs) what? That was weird. Why? There are scenes here where you see the unit folks in front of the slag heaps that are clearly done with CSO. And I have that in my notes. I'm like, why? This could have just been done on location. I was left as stumped as Riley. Yeah. I haven't found anything in production notes or anything like that that explains why. So my only assumption is they ran out of time and had to do something in the studio. That's the only possibility. And then it's even worse when Benton is in Bessie with the Doctor. Oh, (laughs) yeah. But that also has a really good model shot of the shot from above. Yes. Yes. Yeah. If you think about it on the an older, smaller TV, that would totally work. But it's surrounded by just terrible things that don't match up. (laughs) Some of this is just, it's like, why? This could have been done so much better on location. Where you were anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Outside of that, we get poor Yates back at Global Chemicals getting brainwashed. Yep. Got the Doctor and Benton rescuing Cliff and Joe with some sonic screwdriver action to immobilize the maggots. That sound was unbearable. (laughs) (laughs) And we get how to break the brainwashing because of the sapphire that was gotten from Metabellus 3. Yes. How convenient. It's back into play. I liked Yates in this scene. Yeah, he's really good. Yeah, he's he's having fun with it, and I like that. I've never really seen him do something like that before. And I feel really bad for him because Yates is immediately sent back into Global Chemicals by the Doctor to report that the Doctor is dead. No. The poor guy's just been deconditioned and it's like, okay, you should probably get some rest, but instead you're going back on the job, mate. That'll teach you to get work elsewhere. Yeah. Yates tries to deprogram Elgin's replacement, Mr. James. Stevens busts him just as James tells Yates that Boss is going to take over. And that's our cliffhanger. Four o'clock. <laughs> I like that he's specific. The most foreboding time, four o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> All right, episode six. This is where we really dive into boss liking music. Going and breaking oh. into a scene and he's humming a tune. I was asking myself, like, that is boss doing that, right? It's so strange for an AI to be doing that. What was also brilliant is the fact that I had captions on. And it actually was like, this one's a Chopin piece. This one's Beethoven. It actually named what Hmm. things he was humming. I was like, that's brilliant. I'm so happy about this right now. There's some (laughs) Wagner in there, isn't there, at one point? He made a comment about Wagner. Okay. How about we do this on the crest of the wave of Wagner sound? Okay, boss, let's do that. 
He's very bombastic. <laughs> He's very extra as far as Sneha goes. Yes, extra is the best word for that. He also calls Stevens his little Superman. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Very Wagnerian. And I thought that was adorable. It's not only brainwashing with Stevens. It's also, I'm going to flatter him as well. Yeah, it's definitely a, a lot more depth there than just the basic brainwashing relationship. They do actually mention in an earlier episode that it's a little bit symbiotic and that his brain is directly connected to Boss. So it is a little bit beyond just the, as you say, the standard brainwashing. We also get scenes with the Doctor and Jones. Yes. where we get the serendipity. They figure out when the MAGA eats the fungus and dies because of it. And it's Benton and Nancy who figure that out. First off, Benton brought the doctor the chrysalis. And I was like, that's brilliant. Benton being practical. He's like, I'm not entirely sure what this is, but I feel like the doctor should know. So I'm going to bring it to the doctor. Great. And then, yes, we find out about the fungus. What I don't understand is it shouldn't have taken him so long to connect the fungus killing the maggots to curing the green death. It should have happened a little bit quicker, in my opinion. Speaking of Benton and the Doctor, I love the scenes where they are out in Bessie <laughs> feeding fungus to the maggots. <laughs> My favorite thing ever is Benton saying, Here, kitty, 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 come get your lovely dindins. Yes, that was hilarious. And then the Doctor scolding him for, I guess, taking joy out of it. I think that's my favorite Benson moment so far. Yes, I agree completely. And then they get attacked by the fly that provides a little bit of that awful squirting disgustingness. But then he gets killed by the doctor throwing his coat up, which is like, was it the plaid so loud that it killed the fly? I don't understand how... How that works. Headcanon accepted. I thought like once the coat went up, it like it made the fly get knocked down. And then when it was on the ground, they'd like, you know, do a first doctor and smash it with rocks or something. But no. I guess it's just as delicate as the prop looks. It should have been obvious that they were going to turn into flies. Maggots are larvae of flies. So obviously you're going to get giant flies. I I don't understand why they were like, I wonder what's going to happen. What's going to come from these maggots? It's going to be a fly. It's going to be giant, just like a giant maggot. So I was just like, guys, know some science. Now we have a just complete landscape filled with dead maggots and unit has to go around cleaning it all up, (laughs) which to me, for some reason, was incredibly funny. Just thinking about two like average Joes and unit, just another day working in unit, dead maggot disposal. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) We've solved the maggot problem and now we need to solve the boss problem. The four o'clock problem. Four o'clock boss problem. I love the doctor going in, doing his thing, and Stevens decides that he's going to go down with this ship. Yeah, he comes good. The shot with that tear on his face right before the place actually blows up is beautiful. I loved it. He gets his redemption moment. Yes. That moment of silence with the absolute stillness is really haunting. I loved how that was done. And it will not be the last time in this serial they use silence to really emphasize something. Stop it! <laughs> <laughs> Do we need anything else leading up to this ending that we need to discuss? The cure for Cliff where they apply the powder to his neck and Nancy injects him, which 
I'm curious about that. There was a news story I read a few months ago about two guys who decided to inject themselves with magic mushrooms and got oh. blood poisoning because they oh, had God. fungus growing in their blood. Would that not just happen here? I don't know. The way that I took it is so the doctor was going through and like doing something to it to make it an actual usable injection. Okay, that makes sense. Nancy was like, I'm not just here as a pretty face. I know how to do this because I'm a scientist. So she had taken over when the doctor went to go deal with boss. I appreciate someone who is both a pretty face and a smart brain. All right, let's talk about the inevitable. I love Joe's last outfit. I don't yes. know why, but I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's cool. Again, costume change, whole bunch of costume change for Joe, and it was wonderful. I also just appreciate the fact that even though it's a impromptu party, we have a celebration at the end, which is cliche for when you have like a large movie or a large story like this for there to be like, hey, we did it kind of thing. But this is, of course, under the auspices of it being an upcoming marriage. The thing is, is that in Doctor Who, we normally don't get these celebrations. Normally, the doctor's like, I'm out. Peace. Yeah. <laughs> Off to another adventure. <laughs> yes. I think the last time we had it was the demons. There's yes. that celebration that was a festival that was already going to happen. You had Benton with Miss Hawthorne, and here you have Benton dancing with Nancy. I think he has a type. He's also a terrible dancer, not gonna lie. <laughs> He's a white British dude. We're all terrible dancers. <laughs> that wedding proposal was, one, an awful proposal. Yeah. So if I were Joe, I would have been like, uh, you need to try harder. <laughs> Two, it's a little soon. I've known you for what, like 24, 36 hours, something like that? A little bit, yeah. Dude. Yeah. And how about we go to the Amazon and if we can still stand each other at the end, then we can get married. Yeah, it's interesting what they did with this in spinoff media, particularly in the 90s, where in the books they had Joe's marriage not lasting Whoa. and her meeting the Eighth Doctor as a divorcee. And it was very depressing when Russell T. Davies came along and brought her back in the Sarah Jane adventures. He went, no, of course not. That would never happen. Of course they're still married. And writes in about how she has like eight grandkids and stuff like that. And they're still absolutely together doing wonderful things. That's much better. Still yeah. eating funguses. Yes. But you know what was wonderful? We got another. Come on, Mike. Let's have a drink. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, Mike and the Brigadier are getting drinks again. All right. Yeah. So Joe basically gets whole wheel UN research station status because she pulls in a favor. That's a big favor. Can you give this guy unlimited funding? Yeah. Okay, thanks, bye. What do her relatives do to be able to pull that shit off? That's huge. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about it. The doctor. It's so sad. It is. The way he just downs his champagne and quietly leaves. Oh. And Joe glances but doesn't follow and then there's that shot of him driving off alone across the lane it's haunting am i right in that he drinks the champagne before they even do the toast yes ouch he's like yeah this sucks drink i'm out of here and this is what katie manning had to say about the ending and the recording of it that was for real there was not an awful lot of acting required it really hurt to do those scenes i was suddenly losing three years of the whole first part of my career Everybody was very upset and a lot of things just came out on their own. We were a very tight little family. And when this is the end of the show, it's very rough to split up. I feel like this was kind of like the inspiration for how Modern Who deals with dramatic 
separations between companions. It gives the Doctor this sense of the Doctor is very much bad to be left on their own device. Just a very sad, lonely person without someone around them all the time. Yeah, he's known it's coming since the beginning of the story. As Julie said, he made the comments about the fledgling flying the coop. When Russell T. Davies brings Sarah Jane back, he hints that there were romantic feelings in that companion Doctor dynamic, which, sorry, Julie, minor spoiler, I never saw. But I see that here. The Doctor's reaction here is like a spurned lover. She has picked someone else over him and he's butthurt about it. Well, she's known the guy for about a day. I don't really blame him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I like this more than the Susan one because we got to know Professor Jones more than we got to know whoever Susan ended up with. I forget his name. David. <laughs> of course you know. <laughs> but in any case, I can understand it a little bit more and she's staying on Earth in her current time. It's not like she's just staying in a random place in the universe. Yeah, it's not like she's going back with LaTap to his Dalek-infested home planet. <laughs> and she can be able to actually like meet up with the unit people again when they're back from the Amazon. So at least it's much more grounded and it makes more sense than some of the other people who have left. Like Vicky leaving was also not great. Yeah. I'm more okay with this one than some of the other endings that we've had thus far. Yeah. Before we go ahead and rate this... I do want to nominate Boss for the camp count. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, a yeah, little bit. All right, we'll give him a two. Sounds good. Because it's completely arbitrary. Speaking of ratings, let's go. We're going to start with Julie this time around. I don't know what it is about this serial, but I really enjoyed it. The direction was fantastic. Minus a few CSO issues, but I'm choosing to overlook those because there were a lot of other practical effects that I really enjoyed. Boss was phenomenal. I loved every second that he was saying something, and it was great. Stevens, great character, loved the arc. It's one of the better companion leavings that we've seen in quite a while. I thought it was a pretty tight-knit story. I don't think there was a lot of extra fluff that didn't work. Everything worked that was extra in it. I'm going to give it eight and a half random flute players out of ten. <laughs> Riley, you're up next. I don't know why, but I remember this serial really clearly from my own personal watch through a couple of years ago. I don't know why it stuck with me. Maybe it was the environmental subplot because that was new for the show or it being Joe's last serial. This one reminds me a bit of a second doctor story, which is nice, but I would really, really like the show to stop using mind control for at least a couple of seasons. <laughs> it is getting a bit tiresome. Also, I wish for her farewell, Joe would have gotten more screen time in this last serial as a whole. She has some great bits, great scenes, but I feel like there are times where she was off screen for too long. This is well executed, but I wish there was something more special about it. It, it hits all the right notes in all the familiar places, which is good. The only thing special would be Joe's farewell, which was excellent. So I give it eight lovely din-dins out of ten. <laughs> damn it riley you stole my metric don let's hear your thoughts i think everyone's covered just about everything i have to say with this i really enjoyed this serial occasionally in the first episode the messaging seemed to be a little heavy-handed but i forgave it for that as well as the extremely dodgy cso anytime there was an elevator or later on this serial despite that really good story lots of entertaining moments boss was amazing it was just really good fun i'm giving it 
eight and a half doctors in drag out of ten. And that leaves me, and there's an element of nostalgia for this. I mentioned this was one of the first Doctor Who stories I saw when it was repeated on BBC Two. It came out on VHS when I was 10 years old. I've seen it quite a lot of times over the years. I'm going to make no secrets of it. I really, really enjoy this one. I think it's so much fun. I love the setting of South Wales. Again, I have some family heritage there and spent a fair amount of time there. I love Boss. He is so wonderfully charismatic for an evil computer. I think the supporting cast are absurdly good. Candidly, the direction is pretty awesome too. I can really forgive the rushed romantic plot. I can forgive the bad CSO. I can forgive what Don said about the messaging being a little heavy-handed in the first episode. I think a lot of that was about establishing that this is something Joe has suddenly found a passion for, and there's this other guy who's equally passionate about it. For me, I'm going to go a little bit higher. I'm going to give it 9 out of 10 charming Welsh miners, which gives it a story average of 8.5, which ties it for top for this season. That brings us to the end of our episode. We will be back next time when we will be looking back on the entirety of the season in our Season 10 retrospective. Please come and join us for that. In the meantime, as always, thank you so much for listening and have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippeg, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, At Last Welsh Teeth, was recorded on Tuesday the 29th of March 2022. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at watchers4d, and you can also email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a rating or review on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you encounter a strangely colored, foul-smelling substance, don't be an idiot. Don't touch it.